Salam alaikum, everybody. This is the Flick Lab, a weekly film analysis show by two film aficionados looking at one film per week from almost all possible angles. And uh, boy, do we have a multifaceted episode to tackle with. I'm Curry. I'm sort of officially a media professional, or so it is indicated in my diploma anyway. We love cinema as we have discussed in the past, in almost in every form. We aim to please, we see ourselves as kind of an uncompromising podcast, so almost nothing is off the limits as far as I see it. Our goal is to bring you the like the be-all and all movie podcast, if that is possible, in the world of billions of movie podcasts. We want to find all the small intricacies and details in all the movies, kind of getting more technical than the average movie podcast. And today the show is going to be quite different because we have one guest indeed, born and raised in Morocco. So please finally welcome Anas. Hello everybody and thank you for the invitation. (laughs) No problem, my pleasure. My co-host is happiest in the saddle, of course, because it fits this episode. Henrik, how are you? Fine, uh, at least for the moment, until the banging of the drums begins again. <laughs> but still here. Just on a side tangent, Anas was the one that <laughs> that I tried to first convince to become as the co-host, and he is entirely responsible for us covering the Big Lebowski, Henrik. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So thanks just... a lot for that, man. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I just conveniently rolled the responsibility to Anas, so thanks a lot for the super tough second episode. To make things a little easier for us and our listeners, of course, we are now reducing the difficulty level slightly, since not only have we covered 17th century Virginia colonialism and Polish Catholic churches uh, homosexuals, we're now going to discuss Islamic extremism in this podcast, so enjoy. <laughs> yeah. This is truly. <laughs> I mean, this is truly. Yeah. This, this is Kari, again one of those things you just don't fucking do. <laughs> I thank Sorry. God I'm only available for one episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. You know something or a few about Morocco, so. Morocco, 35 million people, right? Yes. And uh, capital is Rabat, fifth largest African country by GDP, originally kind of home of the Berbers. And then there was this uh, Islamic revolution. In 2011, the Berber language also came like the second official language. About the movie, if we get going into this direction, what's your relationship with Today's Moroccan film, Horses of God. Yes, I first saw it like in 2014. It was in its premiere in uh, Tangier. I think you remember Tangier and you remember the cinema where I saw this movie. Because I don't, I don't know if Henrik yeah. knows this, but we met in 
10 years back at was 2014, right? It was around the change of the year. Yeah, it was 2013, December. Ex yes, exactly. So uh, just for like uh, for the record, like we met one of the actors who acted in the James Bond movie. And yeah, first time <laughs> I saw the movie The Horses of God was in Tangier 2014. It was its premiere in Morocco. I rewatched it like yesterday to prepare myself for this podcast. Yeah, as many as of our listeners probably know, we try to get our hands on the drink that is being drunk in each movie we discuss. And today's drink for this episode would be red wine. Wine, nevertheless. Is anyone packing the wine today? <laughs> or I actually have to confess, I took the coward's way out and I am simply drinking tea <laughs> by, by myself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Two. Yeah, that's, that's good. No, no haram points for you. Yeah, no, knowing how tricky or how difficult topic it could be, especially in this movie's context, to consume alcohol. I decided to go against your recommendations, Kari, and I simply <laughs> went with tea. Okay. Indeed, when we met in 2013 December, <laughs> there was this interesting trip for me. We went to this small boutique and we got this bottle of red wine and happened to have a pretty good time. So it's kind of a throwback to those moments for me as well right now here. But uh, Anas, you are not in Morocco anymore. You're in France, yes? Exactly, yeah. Since uh, 2014, I did my yeah. master here in France. Yeah, now it's been like uh, yeah, four years that I'm living in France and working in France. Yeah, this is probably at the same time, considering our background history with this wine. It's at the same time very appropriate and, I guess, inappropriate. To tell you the truth, I at first I didn't want to even review this film because there's all of these problematic connotations, as we know, because I do not want also to give the wrong overall impressions here for mm -hmm. people who don't know anything about Morocco. But there were other films that intrigued me and perhaps could have opened more view of the general Moroccan life. But that being said, then I could see that most of the films were directed by the same dude, his name keeps appearing everywhere, and uh, I believe it could be said that he is responsible for all of the most well-known Moroccan films, and all of them are generally held in high regard. And now I need some pronunciation help, please. See, this guy is uh, Nabil Yauch. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> give, give it a try, Henry. Give it a try. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not touching that last name. <laughs> <Come on>. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> it's Yauch. I blame IMDB here. Okay, it's, <laughs> if you wanted to keep it simple, it's Nabil Ayush. But if you want to go to the Moroccan version, it will be <laughs> Nabil Ayush. Okay. Ayush. Yeah, but just keep Ayush. it simple and call him Ayush. It's easiest for the okay. here. I'll keep it even more simple and call him Nabil, if that's yeah, not just true. Call him, just call him Nabil. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he's an interesting person, uh, for sure. He has directed also Ali... Oh my god. Ali Zawa? Yeah, Zawa. Zawa. About giving a proper burial under 
uh, financial circumstances of challenging nature. Also, he has directed a film called Much Loved. Yes. Which indeed was much banned in Morocco due to apparently having challenging societal themes of prostitution, for example, and nudity. I believe those those were the two. This this guy likes to stir the soup quite a bit. Or alternatively, you could say that he's just bringing up points that should be brought up anyway, before somebody else, maybe from the Western nations, brings them up. Well, you could also argue that the guy is French, but he has some Moroccan origins, yes? Exactly. So he was born to a Moroccan father. I think his mother was... Uh... Jewish was something, I think Tunisian Jewish, but yeah, he was born in the suburbs of Paris. He lived in Paris, he worked in Paris, and I think uh, 1999 he moved back to Morocco. This is where he started his uh, movies career with all the movies turning about like Moroccan taboos. Like, first movie was Homeless right. Guys, and then Terrorism, Prostitution, yeah, all the tricky subjects. Yeah. It's important that somebody is talking about these things. I think that's what art has kind of always been, bringing out the controversial stuff. I suppose, guys, that the Casablanca bombings could be described as the sort of a 9-11 of Morocco, since it was the deadliest attack on Moroccan soil, even now it is. What are your memories from May 16th, 2003? Yeah. If any. You're correct. It was like the broken 9-11. I remember it, I was like yeah, 11 years old or 12 years old. Really young to understand exactly what was happening. But I at least still remember that it was like a big shocking event because nobody was expecting it. Yeah, it was really shocking news. I remember like it was everywhere in the news. Everybody was talking about it. Especially I think it was really shocking because nobody was there. Uh, expecting it all i remembered that it was all over the news but i never understood uh, what it was exactly who did it why and uh, i was too young to understand all the things behind it yeah well i was also relatively young and unfortunately i do not have any recollection of getting this news but you can imagine that of course it was all over when 9-11 happened but i honestly can't remember news about this but it wouldn't surprised me if it was kind of less pronounced. Do you remember where, where you were or what were people's reactions? And It happened like uh, 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. or something like that. Yeah, back in the days, there was no social media and only TV. I think two hours later, still nobody, because I used, I used to live in the north, nobody knew like what was happening there. And even some people like there in Casablanca, they were thinking it's bombs of gas or something. Nobody was thinking it's a tourist attack because it never happened before in Morocco. Everybody was thinking, yeah, maybe an accident or it could be like a gas thing that exploded. Or And then yeah. the news started coming like around 11 p.m. or something. First news that talk about it, like last news of uh, in TV that said that uh, there may be some uh, terrorist attack in Morocco. And then the next day, yeah, all the news came and then uh, everybody knew that uh, there was bombing attacks in Casablanca and so everybody was like really shocked because, uh, like I said, nobody was expecting it. There was uh, the 9-11 and after uh, I think uh, nothing happened. Yeah, and I remember like starting from uh, 
this one in Casablanca and then all the rest came like in Madrid and London and all the rest. But I think the first one that came after 9-11 was in Morocco. Right. Henrik, any recollections from those times? Unfortunately, no. I have to go with the same notion that you made, Corrie, that yeah. in Finland, the news stations really did not take that big of a notice on the Casablanca bombings when they happened. That's my memory of how the news coverage was back in the day. 9-11 was a big deal, even in Finland, and it was covered in news a lot. But I honestly can't remember that the Casablanca incident would have gotten anything more than just maybe two or three notions in news in total. Them just stating that there has been an explosion in Casablanca and later on that it has been confirmed as a terrorist attack. And then some notion about the casualties. And I'm going off with a really, really hazy recollection about the news coverage. But if I remember correctly, even then, the main point in Finnish news was where Finnish tourists injured in the bombings. Right. Of course. That, uh. Yeah, that that unfortunately in local Finnish news, whenever these disasters, attacks or tsunamis or anything major happens, the most important point seems to be where Finnish tourists involved. And if not, it kind of gets skipped over pretty fast. It's kind of a normal like psychologically normal knee-jerk reaction that the first thing you think about is your sort of own people and here we could I guess get to like major tangents why and how we differentiate between I can see that we consider Europe mostly as like a the same group of people but if something happens in Africa people cannot kind of sympathize i guess in the same way because it's so far or their way of life is so different i'm just guessing here of course there's been billions of talk shows about this same stuff but it's endlessly fascinating yeah also don't forget that this happened in like 2003 so i get the days no social media no facebook all the news we get is through tv so we just have to wait for the news to uh like now where we know like what's happening everywhere in the world minutes after the the events. So maybe it was different back in the days than now, because now we know what's going on on elections. Wow. If there is a don't know, volcano or anything, and even in Indonesia, you know about it. So maybe times uh, changed. Yeah, no, of course, always in these situations. But there is also the fact that basically every news station is looking at the situation from inside the nation they themselves are. So, for example, the Finnish news station, of course, covers everything from the Finnish perspective. And in that sense, it's natural that the biggest question in a Finnish mind is, have fellow Finns been injured in the incident? That's kind of a natural to see everything from the point of view of your own nationality. Yeah. But it, of course, does not remove the fact that it may feel kind of a dickish approach from someone else's perspective. And uh, there were these terrorist attacks. I don't know which one because there's been so 
so many at this point. But there were some attacks in Paris and was it like a few days after uh, something very similar happened, an explosion in a building and it was uh, somewhere in the Middle East. But uh, the visibility of these two news, there's an extremely huge difference. But uh, still on the same way, we have to kind of uh, also take notice of the fact that America has always been a special case when it comes to the news coverage. In West, we always pay very close attention to America and what happens in the US. And in a way, the 9-11, it still today is very special kind of an attack how it was pulled off and what were the casualties. So yeah, I can see some logic behind why the news coverage has been so different between 9-11 and the Casablanca bombings. Of course, it does not mean that it's perfectly okay or that's how the thing should be since people died in both incidents and... They both have been extremely terrifying attacks. If we think of 9-11 type of situation, which is unfortunately media friendly because planes flying into buildings, it's interesting. If this would happen in Morocco to a high-rise building, I think the interest level would not be the same. But of course, there is something to understand in that one as well, because, you know, New York, a very important city for the whole world and economy, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of things that you could get into, but still, human lives all the same. Yeah, it is kind of a... It's affected a lot by how America itself has pushed itself onto the world. They have repeatedly brought out the point that they are superpower. The only mm. superpower in the world, if you believe any American president... And they are a major cultural exporter. And they are extremely big player on a global scale. So, of course, anything that happens in America immediately gets noticed. Remove the discussion from simply being at the 9-11. You can also take a look how much the American politics gets news coverage worldwide compared yeah. to... Yeah. Pretty much any other country. That's absolutely true. If I could even compare <laughs> a similar situation happening in Helsinki, Itakeskus high-rise building, I don't think there would be many people who would give a damn. <laughs> but that, that's a shitty example. But a lot of nuances and pop culture and everything that changes the level of interest country by country, case by case. That's just how it is. All right, so... This film is based on the novel by a uh, Moroccan writer, uh -oh, uh -oh. Mahi Binebine. Mahi Binebine. I'm going to keep on butchering these names as this show progresses. The, the, there's going to be extremely lot of mispronunciation in this episode. No problem, I'm here to correct. <laughs> That's 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 a great thing that we have, like an authentic Moroccan guest. Unfortunately, I was not able to get my hands on the book. Kind of hard to find, and I think the only one that I could find was in French. So tricky. 
We like to do very thorough research in this podcast, but we can now concentrate fully on the movie, scene by scene. But maybe Anas is the best of us to kind of give us the synopsis of this movie, if you I don't think try so. it. I don't think so. I think you're the host. You have yeah. to do it. You can't give this to me because I haven't been sleeping in like 30 hours. <laughs> Just go ahead. Well, uh, this will be overly simplified, I suppose. There are a bunch of buddies. They are kids. And they play football. We see one brother that happens to be quite violent. And when he gets older, he radicalizes. He radicalizes and brings with him his friends and his brother. And things get awry. Yeah, that's pretty accurate on what happens in the film. (laughs) I mean, in a lot of ways, this is a growing up story. Yeah. That covers kind of a... The characters growing up from what would they be during majority of the film? I would maybe early 20s. Yeah, the, the, in real life, they were between 20 and 23, I believe. Yeah, so early 20s, and this is a growing up story from that point on. At the same time, carries with it that theme of religious radicalism. Yeah, it's built in a very uh, interesting, compassionate kind of way. I mean, you start to care about these characters because you see the childhood part and it gives you kind of more the perspective why they would radicalize in the first place. It's not like happening overnight, but there's a lot of layers and things going on. And there is a lot of, I believe, things that could be very tied to Moroccan culture, so I need a lot of help here from Anas. Mm-hmm. The first thing that kind of jumps into the frame as a big thing is uh, drinking in Moroccan culture. There's this party. And I think the kids are drinking wine. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. Like cheapest kind of wine you can find in the market. Yeah. Do you want to kind of shed on the light? How does the Moroccan culture think about alcohol? Yeah, it's kind of complicated. Yeah. But yeah, even if it's normally forbidden or haram in religion to drink alcohol, still like... uh, Really, a lot of people still drink alcohol. You can find it in markets. You can buy wine, beer, whatever you want. And uh, especially young people, like everybody drinks alcohol. So uh, yeah, maybe the stereotype for European yeah, Western people would be like, yeah, in Morocco, it's Islamic country, so no alcohol. Yeah, but it's not the, the reality. Like, uh, especially mm. you'll find it like in uh, shanty towns or suburbs, but also everywhere You'll find uh, people who drink alcohol, some of them to celebrate, others to escape from uh, the sad reality. But yeah, it's not something weird at all to drink alcohol in Morocco. I think you've been in Morocco and you know what I'm talking about. The picture that I got is that it's uh, totally openly sold. Perhaps some of the shops are kind of hidden in some back alleys or they are just small. I don't know, uh, but... There are no consequences in practice for drinking alcohol. It's haram, but exactly. people drink it anyway. And nobody's going to throw you to jail or anything. No, like no. Then we get to a child raping a child. What's the real meaning of the rape scene? Is it to remove some status from this person? 
Yeah, I think uh, at least we should agree that it was a violent scene, but uh, it was violent society verbally, even physically. So this scene where uh, you can see all the young friends who go drinking, and then uh, 10 years, 12 years old, young people drinking alcohol, then one goes drunk and get raped by the other one. I think that's the main message behind this scene. And like in Much Loved, the director shows a prostitute, but we don't have any skin showing as far as I remember, but the theme is there. It's just something that he wants to put out there, I guess. And is it okay to show a prostitute or that is also kind of no-no? Normally it isn't. From what I can remember, all of the most of Moroccan movies are kind of conservative, so you won't see a lot of nudity scene, a lot of sex scene or anything. But this director is, I find him like very courageous because uh, in all of his movies, he went analyzing taboos that everybody know about it. In Morocco, I think you've been in Marrakesh and you know how it is. A lot of sexual tourism, a lot of prostitutes. So he was yeah. just uh, showing what's happening in reality. But the feedback was really aggressive. And I remember that Much Loved was even banned in the movie theaters. It was only showed in European and especially in France. The movie director is like really free man. He goes analyzing like taboos. And then I think in all his movies, like at least the one I watched, he went treating this kind of subjects. Yeah, the list of these problematic things <laughs> doesn't end here, but maybe something to put in between here. Just to ask Henrik if he has been anywhere near Morocco or any like Arabic culture experiences or something like this. I have been in Morocco and oh. yeah. I've seen a bit of the world and seen some of the Islamic cultures. However, of course, my experience has always been from the perspective of a tourist. And I have visited the Islamic countries as a tourist. And because of this, automatically the point of view that I have gotten, it's not, could it be said, realistic Because it is a perspective of a tourist. I have seen what a tourist would see. And what gets shown to that tourist, it's not real, in a sense. I have not seen real Casablanca. I have seen the tourist version of the Casablanca. I have not seen real Turkey. I've seen the tourist version of Turkey. You mean, I guess, specifically like a guided tourist tour version? Yeah. A guided version, I've also always stayed on the areas that have hotels, that have bars and barber shops, and the areas that know that tourists come here. So, of course, the infrastructure I have enjoyed, it has, in a sense, been built for tourists. And everybody on those cities, on those towns, they automatically know that They come here and they bring their money. And of course, mm. in a sense, they show the best part of themselves and the best part of the country and the best part of their culture. Yeah, there's a lot to love about Morocco. I went to Morocco in December 2013 on my own without knowing almost 
anything about anything and then it was like the part of my couch surfing tour i believe anas was my second host there and that's how we got to know each other in tangier and then i moved on further south definitely i could see that if you are on your own as like a european dude and of course dressing in a certain different way they noticed that immediately and you're kind of their target and there was this one street where there were like five people selling me something and i found it like a kind of a huge contrast to what i had experienced before and i have to say that it was easier when i was with this moroccan guy who showed me the more southern parts of the country and he could negotiate in arabic all the prices with the taxi drivers and all that stuff i think i would have been kind of screwed in that culture because first of all i never negotiate prices with anybody where i come from once again this is the academic point of view the boring academic shit you get in this podcast there is the notion that whenever you are a visitor in some country you you can never actually say that you get a real experience because your host or anyone you come into contact they don't know this that you are not a local yeah and they kind of react correspondingly to that and so what you get is kind of the treatment not a local gets yeah i think i got the more authentic version a little more authentic when i was with someone local so i could of course get to places that no normal tourist ever goes to or you know doesn't have even the slightest idea to go to that's great but you're absolutely right about that even in the last days me living in poland there was this i suppose he was kind of a local drunken person he stopped into the lights with me just turned uh, facing me and asked from me point blank in polish like where are you from uh, yeah and then i asked him i don't look any polish to you no absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> so i cannot get the authentic experience in poland either anyway any thoughts from anas i guess you were kind of surprised how much the people were selling me stuff in tangier i think it got a little bit easier after you get out of tangier maybe tangier is kind of like the center of shopaholism for tourists and maybe marrakesh as well but i didn't get that there I think Marrakesh is like the worst ever okay. when it comes to selling things to tourists. Yeah, I re- I was there like just uh, a few weeks ago, and I was there with a with Dutch friend, and everyone was thinking like uh, we are tourists because they took me for tourists too. So uh, oh. I had to experience what uh, normally tourists experience when they are in marrakesh which is like the worst ever it was all the time no guy i'm moroccan just get the fuck out of my face <laughs> all the time but yeah <laughs> at least i know what tourists have to face yeah sometimes i have to understand like why people act like this because when you live in a in extreme poverty yeah but you can do uh, everything for money but yeah still it's not it's not an excuse are... to go uh, selling or what you can to tourists and charging or price thing but yeah yeah i guess what can you do <laughs> but they're really talented i have to yeah, tell them that because yeah. <laughs> yeah wow especially the dude in the big center with the cinema in tangier exactly well let me ask you questions yeah like to both of you like to okay. go back to the movie 
Did you like the movie? Is it a good movie? Can we tell you at the end of the episode? <laughs> yeah, I, I too would like to avoid answering that question as long as I I humanly can. <laughs> because my, my, my stance with this movie is somewhat problematic. We'll get to that then. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, we cannot avoid answering the question indefinitely, since we have to answer that or give our thoughts about the movie at least in the very end of each episode. <clears throat> so then there is um, homosexual tendencies in this film. There is this effeminate or femininely behaving person, Nabil, he also wears an earring, as pointed out by Anas. He also tries on lipstick, and the scene where he's stroking Yashin. Yeah, no, it's normally it's a Russian name because his real name is Tarek, but everybody right. called him Yashin. The yeah, the goalkeeper, the Russian goalkeeper Lev Yashin. So it's a Russian name. <laughs> okay, let's call him Tarek. That's uh, good. No, call yeah. Okay, he, actually, his name was Yashin, and then when uh, he didn't convert, but when he went like extremist, he changed his name to Tariq, so he won't have like an Occidental name. Normally his name is Tariq, but everybody was calling him Yashim because uh, yeah. he loved that goalkeeper so much. But I don't know if you noticed, but uh, once he uh, went with all those uh, radical Islamist guy, he turned his name again to Tariq, so uh, his name would be like the name of an infidel. <laughs> Nice one. Interesting. Huh. Did he also give some kind of a homosexual look to somebody? There could have been some yeah, eye contact. I didn't notice this, but somebody else did. Like giving certain kind of look to another dude. It's made perfectly clear that they are making him as the, like, the homosexual of the movie. Just another kind of controversial subject for this film. But why did they do that? It's unknown to me, just to put it out there. Was it just to, you know, I guess, have some kind of a excuse for the repair shop owner to try to rape this guy? Yeah. Actually, I don't know exactly. I think this character, the character of Nabil, the effeminate guy, wasn't really developed. Like, uh, in the beginning of the movie, I don't know if you remember, but well, he's the Hamid, the brother of uh, Yashid, was all the time telling him why you keep going with this guy, why all you are following him all the time. The again, characters not being completely developed was maybe one of the problems with all the characters in this film. But you did say that nobody in Morocco as a guy has an earring. Yeah, true, true. You could tell that the guy had like some gender issues and he didn't know exactly what he was. Because uh, he was always sleeping uh, in the arms of his friends. When uh, his mother uh, went away from that uh, shiny town, he went trying uh, lipstick. You could see he was wearing the area, which is not normal for a male in Morocco. So you could tell that the guy is like uh, not really sure about his sexual orientation. Yeah, it could be, I guess, argued that there were some problems with the development of some of the characters because... Maybe it's also just a problem of me because I'm coming from different kind of culture and may not understand it. But for me, the transformation of Yashin from this nice mother's boy 
who takes care of the family and wants to help, changing seemingly overnight into the same guy as his brother. I just didn't buy it. I think the main problem was it was especially the second part after Hamid goes out of jail. I think it kind of went so fast. They changed and how they moved from uh, good guys to uh, some fanatic young who want to be become martyrs and die for their faith. So I think that's yeah. the main problem with the movie. It was like technically the movie was okay. I'll say even high quality, good cinematography, but the building of characters and the story was kind of really fast. Yeah, it it was, and also then it kind of wasn't. And the director's idea was to kind of flesh them really out so you could maybe understand or at least see how the transformation or the development happens there. But for Hamid, it's just he comes from jail and he's an extremist. And then it takes a seemingly couple of days, probably longer in real life. But then Yashin is on board and mother is all worried. It was weird because Yashin was giving such a hard time for Hamid just disappearing from the family environment and then all of a sudden he's doing the same but I guess yeah it's a shantytown people are less educated it may be easier to coax them into new things but then again also the director wanted to not show that extremism grows only from poverty because it doesn't he agrees with that as well of course he has to but here it seems like exactly that kind of scenario for these kids at least. That they transform from. Because of poverty they are easily manipulated and they can be provided better food. Some kind of more organized balanced life via this terrorist group. Yeah, my one of the big problems I had with this film is the fact that I think that I felt that the film did not go that much in detail on how radicalism works and how these radical groups kind of, uh, how they draw people in and how they change people. The movie shows some aspects from these terrorist cells point of view, the kind of tricks they can use. Like th- there are those scenes where the other members of the cell, they give more attention to Yashin. They kind of make him feel special and there are hints to the fact given that Hamid would have told the other members or the recruiters of the terrorist cell what kind of a person Yashin is. That Hamid would have told them that Yashin likes football and he used to be a goalkeeper and he likes this Russian goalie and stuff like this, and then the recruiters and the other members of the cell would take these points and use them to recruit Yashin and to make him feel special. So so the movie gives you that notion, but it does not show you the perspective of Yashin, how he feels about all of this, how he kind of reacts to these more radical ideas, and how he accepts them as the time goes on. Yeah, yeah. I think like uh, can divide the movie in like two parts. First part, where you follow the life of those young boys, a whole life that is shaped by 
extreme poverty, like you're exploited from the community, from friends, from your employer, from the police who keep harassing you, the government, indifference from government, horizon. You see like your life is not changing, you're not going to school, nothing is changing in your life. And then you have those recruiters who come and all of a sudden you become a part of a community. You have all of their support and care. They invite you to food. They invite you to uh, receive some religious instruction for some kids who never went to school. You find a little bit of discipline. And of course, because they make you feel important, they give you like a purpose in your life. So imagine for a guy who's 18, 19, 20, I think even if the movie didn't went like really deep into how those kids changed and how they became like uh, violent and uh, even willing to become martyrs and die for their faith, I think it's explained by the whole first part where you see people, the young people living like in extreme poverty. Yashin was in love with the the girl, but. Uh, Every time he hears, like, it's, she's not for him because he's a poor guy, has no job. So then he goes to work and then he's uh, exploited by the guy who has the mechanic garage. And then he goes to uh, sell uh, oranges and then he's exploited by the guy who uh, rules in the market. So you kind of understand how it's easy to indoctrinate these guys who, like, have nothing in their life. How it's, like, really easy to change them just by giving them a little bit of importance and a little bit of discipline and those are things they never got it like in their whole lives yeah yeah that's a that's a good notion if the director's goal was kind of to give a full view on why people go to terrorism it's still not stemming only from these kind of situations so i'm surprised that there wasn't more explanation for example how did the leaders of this group in this uh, shanty town become radicalized i suppose they could have entertained these roots with the story as well what i would have wanted to see more in this film and what i was expecting to see here was more of the emotional side of the radicalization of these characters Like many times the movie shows you the mechanics, like Anas pointed out that you you get to see the poverty, you get to see Yashin not getting the girl he loves, and you get to see him struggle with his work and stuff like that when it comes to cinematic language. To me, those are all mechanical plot points. There is poverty, and then this thing happens, Yashin loses the girl. And then this thing happens. Yashin meets with Hamid after he has been let out of the prison. I kept on waiting when the movie would have shown us more emotional side of radicalization. How it feels to come in contact with these radical ideas and how you react to those ideas on an emotional level. How does it feel? How much anger do you feel inside of you and how does it feel when you kind of let that anger surface and take a form that was kind of what i was expecting that this movie would present me at some point and instead i felt that all i get was this mechanical side 
where it's shown that now this thing happens and now this thing happens and now this thing happens and now Yashin is a radical. Yeah. If that makes any sense to you guys. Yeah, it feels like something was left out. Things feel too sudden. In a way they they feel in a way it especially with Yashin and how he's portrayed at the beginning of the film where it's given the notion that he's kind of a slow Hamid is the kind of the brains of the two. He's the one with the plans and he gives Yashin directions like do this and do this and take this part and take it to the mechanic and ask him to give you a tenor and do not take any less money. Take 10 dirhams. If he tries to offer you less, do not take it. Yeah, through all this, it's kind of given the impression that Yashin is the slower of the two. It kind of feels like Yashin goes from this person, this kind of a slower person, or from zero to to full extremism in just a couple of moments. Yeah, I didn't get that he was slow. I may be kind of more emotional driven, whereas Hamid was just doing as he pleased to get his goals done. Yes, I think I agree that we don't get a clear sense of uh, where or why the boy shifts over into radicalism, especially in like a really fast way. At one moment, they are like really skeptical of the imam, like the Abu Zubair, like the, the head of the group. And at one moment, they are just completely devoted. At the next moment, they are just completely devoted to this guy. One thing this movie tried and many other didn't is the treatment to this suicide bomber to disguise it's not hollywood but he tries to provide like a human face to these people that are also victims of course they did those horrible things but they are also victims of other things in this society like uh, the terrorism and suicide numbers are in the wrong but at least we know like uh, there are some real world issues that lead to the creation of those bombers and that maybe if it's changed for the better, maybe it will help reduce uh, the number of those young people who have like no options, but uh, only violence. Here we have the poverty situation. It's completely easy to manipulate people. Uh, fair enough. But then there are these people who have higher degrees of education. They come out of universities, have PhDs, and then they fly the next uh, day the uh, plane into a building. So th- that's a kind of a different kind of beast but also there is the same type of manipulation in the background that you think that there is something bigger than everything else that you have learned in life and your beliefs completely override everything else that you have learned in life yeah and that that's an important point to remember whenever discussing about terrorism is that terrorism like you said it's not just something that the poor people do or something that the uneducated people do yeah, and that's my main problem with this movie, because I think it could have been more pronounced. And this movie doesn't explain a whole lot, actually, about the yeah. birth of terrorism. Yeah, and if the movie would have shown more of the ways how a radical cell, how it works on one-on-one contact, like what a leader of this kind of a terrorist cell says to a person he wants to recruit for the cell, on face-to-face conversation. It could have actually helped kind of bring out the point on 
how educated people also can be lured into radical ideals. Don't forget, like, the movie is only about the May 16 bombings, where all the young people who these attacks were coming from this suburbs, from this area of Casablanca. Mm, fair but enough. The movie is not about international terrorism or about every attack is different sure and yeah. the people who did it is like different but this movie was only about may 16 and it was the 12 bombers the 12 young people who did it were all coming from this suburbs of casablanca so i agree that not all the terrorism is done by poor people and educated people but it is the case in this in this bombing attack a uh, very good point henrik Then again, in this movie, when it comes to Casablanca bombings, we only get the final viewpoint of two of the bombers. Basically, in the movie, we follow four persons with the mission. And even then, two of them, as far as I understood, chicken out from the final act of actually doing the attack. Was it Fallout who runs away from the group? just before the attack, and Hamid tries to convince Yashin not to go through with the attack, and is left behind by Yashin and Nabil, who are the only two persons we are actually shown going through with the attack and using the bombs they have been given. Yeah. The Casablanca attack was 12 bombers in total. So there are 10 more people and 10 more viewpoints that we are not being shown here in this movie. We are just being shown this one group. And at the final act of the attack, we are only being shown these two people. Even in reality, one or two of the attack bombers couldn't do it at the end. And they were like too afraid and they ended up uh, just running away from all the events. If I'm not wrong, I think... uh... It did happen in reality. Yeah, the movie is marketed more or less as a fictional account on their backstories, and uh, perhaps the names are made up as well, and probably kind of hard to build any kind of backstory when 12 people blow themselves up or so. But we know enough that uh, it all started in this suburb, and that's what it's based on. So nobody liked the movie or what? Don't 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 say that. Let's get to that. So <laughs> as I said, this is a fictional account of real events, but I think it's uh, doing a pretty good job at that. It could be believed that this is what happened more or less. Let's start with the audio and music, because we are so thorough. What did you think about it? Uh, hard to say. Like the first instinct would be to say that it was exotic, but Then again, the audio and music is pretty much the same as I've heard in every movie that has Middle Eastern locations. Uh, Henrik, you're forgetting that nowadays exotic is now a racist word. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, carry on. (laughs) It's a free country, say whatever you want. How the fuck is that racist? I have found the exotic served to me in the grocery store, for fuck's sake. Like, shit. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, good call. Good call. I I was completely unaware of that. 
But the movie was almost nominated for Oscar. How can you say it's exotic? Basically, the Oscars has always had the need to kind of pretend that they are extremely open-minded and that they appreciate all film and not just movies coming from America. So in that sense, I would make the case that the Oscar nomination does not mean anything in that sense. If I could rectify a bit, because as far as I've read, this was not nominated no, it was for not anything. Se- no, it but it was it... Morocco for Academy Award, but it was not nominated. Right, right. I said it was almost nominated. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the soundtrack is by Malvina Manier. I'm butchering the name, of course. And it's a very piano-driven. I did like it. Maybe kind of cliche. I don't know. I, I did enjoy listening to it. It's not bad. It's just something that I have heard many times before. Yeah, dramatic, tragic, uh, choir, music. What did you think about the pacing? I think it has some kind of a pacing problems. I think it goes past too fast. <laughs> Seriously? Pacing-wise, yeah. I would say that's the problem with this movie's pacing. It goes too fast. It skips things, but it's still not going fast enough. It skips the wrong things. It's slow and skips, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And you actually, you might be more right on that one than, like, now now that you said it, I would say that you hit it right in the nail. That is the problem. Yeah, okay. This is a slow-moving film, and it kind of maybe tries to compensate the slowness by skipping past some points, and it ends up skipping past the wrong parts. My favorite thing that I enjoy here is probably the cinematography, but also I enjoy that, as far as I understand, the actors, main actors at least, they have never been actors before. And they were really meticulously picked for this film. Some of them are, as far as I understand it again, from the same suburb neighborhood. Or they were friends of some of these people who were involved in the killings. Or they knew something about these people. So the actors that are in the film are somehow in real life affected by these events very closely. And that's probably why you get such a nice performance out of them without no experience from before they are thrown into this film and I'm raising my hat, great performances. And then you combine it with the cinematography. There's some aerial footage, as we like to get technical here. Uh, there's aerial footage which is probably filmed with Red One camera, with the hexacopter that they offer with this camera. And then there is Arri Alexa, which is used for, not aerials, but I like to say, Groundials, and uh, this camera apparently shoots more detailed picture than is possible to get to traditional film. Anyway, that's out of the way. What did you think about cinematography and acting? I think the acting is really incredibly nice, especially if we know that those are like unprofessional actors. All of them, it was like first movie, and uh, speaking of the movie, uh, it was very good technically. The cinematography is very high quality with some breathtaking shots that are obtained through the use of flying camera. I don't know if you remember, but there were a lot of scenes 
where you see a flying camera zipping across the shanty town yeah following like the life of the young guys it's great yeah for example this is the super talented uh, cinematographer or camera dude roger deakins he shot the bond film skyfall with one of the ground deal cameras alexis and yeah these are kind of a motherfucker cameras was it like um 100k price for these cameras yes and i don't know if you remember the last scene of the movie where you see a shot like the same flying camera where you see the guys playing football and then they stop yep. when the bombing happens and then they keep playing football and you have the ball that uh, falls off the roof it was like i love that yeah, shot it was a really yeah. good shot and what this scene this shot does is great because it kind of i think it's okay that it kind of minimizes the effect of the explosion to the viewer. We don't see the actual explosion, really. We see the explosion a bit from the distance then. The kids just look at what's going on in the distance for a moment and then they carry on playing their games. So for me, it's just kind of speaking that these lives were completely wasted and this is just kind of one burp in the middle of a huge city. So what, what was the point of it all? I thought it was great. Yes. And the final shot that you already brought up, the nighttime with the kids playing football, it really shows the technical quality when it comes to camera operation. Like there, there is the change of altitude with the drone camera that's been done. That really shows that there's real expertise behind the camera work and cinematography here. I also love the close-up on Hamid's face when he sees Yashin and Nabil going through with the bombing. The smoothness of the close-up combined with the overexposure of the light against Hamid's face. That was a magnificent shot, in my opinion. I don't know for you, but I found that there was a lot of similarities between this movie and the Brazilian movie City of God. I don't know if you watched it before, Cidade de Dios. You mean the tracking shots? No, I mean the movie in general. The suburbs and the, the 10 years of the life of those young people. It was like really the same in City of God, where you go through the life of those young people since they were a kid, and then they evolve and become like uh, criminals. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point that you brought up. I didn't even realize to think about that when I was watching this film. Business-wise, it is maybe kind of a shock that this didn't do so well if we can believe the statistics that i found it didn't do as well as harris chase music videos i'm afraid it was released first on Cannes film festival 19th may 2012 then next one i believe was the tangier film festival where our boy anas was on 8th of february 2013 the budget was an estimated 3 million but gross usa is just a three about four thousand dollars and then worldwide record is uh, 150k somehow i'm not surprised at all by the small u.s box office yeah a little pocket money yeah (laughs) critics were favorable towards this i've seen only favorable reviews basically like 100 percent approval rating and very high from the general moviegoers to be truthful like coming from uh 
different cultural background, it could be hard for me to say how hard or easy it might be to recruit someone. It seems to me that the change has happened too easily. That being said, it's a very smart film in my view, how it handles like the whole case of extremism, carefully avoids painting extremism in, in any kind of favorable light. For example, in the end, you do not see the explosion quite well, you see the small blip. I enjoy the director's way of making us feel and grow to understand some sides and relations of these guys. But it's kind of a double-edged sword. And you could not do it as strongly where you do not show their childhood. And for me, their setting in the shantytown, it makes it fascinating. Fleshed out on one end and then not so fleshed out on the other end. Well, all things considered, I would still recommend Horses of God. Yeah, um, this is kind of a difficult film for me to approach. Partly because, once again, I do not share the cultural background with the film, with the filmmakers or the actors or basically anything tied to this film. And I don't know the actual incident that well. So, of of course, I come with... a cultural package also when it comes to Horses of God. But still, I kind of felt a bit disappointed with this film. I would have liked to see more of the emotional side of radicalism. Like, what makes a person radicalize? What kind of a mindset goes behind a radical? What do you mean by emotional side of radicalism? I think it this point. It's extremely hard to explain, but to give you a different point of view to this film, here the radicals stem from poverty and from shanty towns. And in Finland, we also have a history with terrorism. We had our own domestic terrorists during the late 1800s, 1880 and 1906 was the time period when we in Finland had domestic terrorism. And those acts, on the other hand, were done by educated people. Like, our terrorism stemmed from academia and bureaucrats. And coming from that background myself, I would have liked to see what is the mindset? How is his way of looking at the world? being changed by others. Yeah, it's missing. I do admit that it's... Maybe that's the goal, but then it's going against what the director said that would be his goal, to see why this happens. I think it was kind of explained, maybe not enough, but I don't know if you remember all of these scenes where you see all the young friends watching all those propaganda videos of Osama Bin Laden and all the jihadis trading for uh, the fights and where you see, uh, I don't know if you recognize those videos, but I did when I was a young guy. Like we watched a lot of those where you see like all the Palestinians uh, getting like murdered by the, by Australian soldiers. And uh, so it kind of shows how this propaganda works. Like those people, they made them watch all of this kind of, videos where they see Muslims getting murdered and attacked all over the world and uh, 
that there is like big complot against them and uh, all the American Zionists. Yeah, you know, the old uh, complotist stories. So imagine a guy who never went to school, who only lived in a shanty town and he gets to watch all these kind of videos. So for sure he will be like easily indoctrinated. I'm sure that an average guy who had like just a minimum of studies will not buy it and will not get indoctrinated that easily. But if I put myself in the place of a young people and young guy who never went to school, whose life is all full of violence, verbal one, physical one, and then I'm sure the first one who offers him an alternative, I think he will easily follow it and he will easily buy it. So it feels like that this could be like a some kind of a big cultural gap. Maybe there's some hatred that is inherent to different entities that I cannot see so clearly as you could see, what the Moroccan slum guy could see, and then radicalize right away. Or, yeah. Yeah, just don't forget that we're talking about like the shanty towns of Morocco. So uh, imagine if Morocco is like a poor country. So imagine the poor of of a poor country, right. how their life would be, because uh, I don't know if you remember, right. but uh, those guys live in Shantytown, and the first time where they get to see like a modern city is like when they go, uh, I don't know if you remember the scene with it, where they go in a car and the first time they see gardens and uh, wealthy people and uh, people having cars and taking their sons to school in a car, and then they go to that forest right. where you see a uh, them playing in a river right. and those guys are only used to all this miserable life in those shanty towns where there is no horizon no yeah no opportunities nothing yeah. so and it and then it's actually what happens in reality because all of the 12 or 14 guys who did those attacks all of them came from uh, shanty towns one funny thing about this movie is that uh, the director was like uh, shooting his first movie Alizawa about all the homeless guy who was shooting it in the same suburbs where those guy came from and this is why he went right. uh, filming the second one in the same because he was saying like uh, when I was making the first movie maybe I met those guys who went doing the bombing attack but I couldn't do anything about it, it didn't change their life but you just have to realize that those guys are really living in like a an open sky trail so it's really really easy to indoctrinate them and even this i think if i can relate it to what happens lately in france all of if i don't say 90 percent of the terrorist attacks that happened in france all of them came from young people living in the suburbs of france and with same conditions misery unemployment poverty so i kind of understand how it goes yeah when you Put it like that, that the people haven't even seen the actual Casablanca, right? But they are just outside of Casablanca. So are they really so immobilized by their condition that they cannot even get to the city that they kind of live in? I, I kept thinking that how much must this one taxi ride be for them? There was a couple of scenes when they left with a taxi and that must have been a fortune to them. Do you know how much is the distance then between this shanty town and the Casablanca city? Uh, because just few, just few kilometers, not a lot. 
Okay, so so you're saying that basically people are so poor that they don't even bother to. They are just it's just it's, so off limits. Extreme poverty. Somebody, yeah, somebody would tell them to just fuck off exactly, back to where they came from. Exactly, because they don't. Yeah, exactly, because they don't feel like right. going to the cities, like moving from one continent to another. They just feel like marginalized, like nobody wants them, so they never even think about uh, moving to the city. Right. Have you ever, by the way, by some off chance, have you ever been in anywhere near no, such sa- shanty towns? Never. Okay. <laughs> even Casablanca yeah. scares me a lot. Imagine going to the suburbs of Casablanca. <laughs> One thing that I still would still like to like ask: What do you think about this when they were looking at the planes flying into the WTCs? One of the people says, uh, "Quote: They got them and." Is this kind of reflecting some kind of Moroccan anger towards United States? You're talking about 9-11, right? Yeah, because they were looking yeah, at this. I, uh, actually, I, I remember when it happened, I think I remember, like, I won't say most, but a lot of people were kind of happy about it because you know how most of the Islamic people, like Muslim people, feel about USA what they did in Iraq and Afghanistan, all this. So most right. of people felt like it was kind of punishment to what they did all around the Islamic world. Right. Well, where is Henrik? I'm still here. I'm just been listening to your conversation. And what do you think? Yeah, would you recommend <laughs> Horses of God? Uh, <laughs> I would give this... I give it a careful recommendation. Okay. I recommend that you check Horses of God. You can check Horses of God because of the topic and also because you don't see a Moroccan film that often. So in that sense, yeah, there is some reasons to recommend Horses of God, but at the same time, I did not connect that much with this film. So a careful recommendation from me. What about you, Curry? Yeah, like like said prior, I would recommend it. What Henrik said right there, I'm not sure where it's stemming from that this doesn't feel like uh, your average film that is based on real terrorist events. We <laughs> have a great share of those, but part of it is, of course, the cultural thing, that it, this is basically a Moroccan movie. But part of it may come from the way that he tells the story in a way that it's really grounded. That's for sure. Yeah, I really was dreading the moment when we start doing this podcast. Once again. Because of the cultural gap and Mm. with the talking point of Islamic terrorism. But since we have to be completely honest here on this podcast... In many ways, this is a movie that I have seen before. Like th- th- There is extremely a lot that I have seen in other movies. I can see that you see that. Like I said, I feel that the answers this movie gives you are too simple for my taste. Like, you live in poverty, you don't have education, someone gives you attention, and you see propaganda films, so you radicalize. To me, that's too easy of an answer. I would have appreciated more if this movie would have taken me more 
inside the mind of a radical. But perhaps it actually did, at least some Moroccan or Arabic minds, which is actually a scary thought that if it's as easy as it seems to be radicalized people as this film portrays, then it means that there could be a lot of anger that could be set aflame just like that. If that's what the movie is portraying, then that's that's hella scary, as teenagers, I guess, would say. It's scary. And I can, but, and I can, yeah. I can see your point, but I can't agree with it. Once again, this is kind of a tied into the cultural background of me being a Finnish, of our form of terrorism being a bit different. All that may affect on what I did and what I did not see in this film. But I really did not see your close presentation of a radical mind. I saw few examples of mechanics that a radical cell can use, and that's all. That made me feel that this movie gave me easy answers. What I think is like the reality might be as simple as we saw it in the movie, and maybe even those terrorists, like even the mentors, even the teachers, who like they had really limited education because I remember like one of the bombing who went uh, targeting like Jews. They went there on the Friday. So if they had like just a minimum of education, they would know that Jews go there on Sabbath, on Saturday and not on Friday. And even yeah. even the victims of all those bombings, there were like uh, 45 victims. 12 of them were like Packers, 23 were Moroccans, and only a few of them were European. So this gives you an idea about how amateur it was. Yeah, but then again, the movie kind of gives it the excuse that killing Muslims is okay because they're hanging out with this Jewish people or whatnot. But if we look at the statistics really here, the most people who suffered, died or got injured were Muslims. Exactly. So you're talking about the attack on the church, right? And then there was another attack planned for a graveyard, a Jewish graveyard. Yeah, this was absurd. <laughs> yeah, but these idiots couldn't find it and then they blew up themselves <laughs> next to a fountain in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Killing, I believe, no one. Yep. Not so well planned out. To still, you know, hump my point on, wanting <laughs> to see the mindset or get inside the heads. There is the parallel within this movie's characters, because there is the fifth guy, Khalil, who right from the get-go rejects basically everything that the cell is giving to them and leaves the cell very early on, when they are still indoctrinating Yashin and the others. I would say that in that moment, even the film itself makes the point that the terrorism is not as simple as poverty and lack of education, but there is something that goes inside a person's head. When he first comes into contact with these radical ideals and during the indoctrination into radicalism, and simply by the virtue of Khalil and the different path he presents in this movie, I would have wanted to see 
the difference on how Khalil feels and how he sees the world versus how Yashin feels and how he sees the world. I would have wanted to get inside Khalil's and Yashin's heads and see the difference. Yeah, I don't feel particularly good about throwing this into Anas's direction. He can comment or not comment. But to me, I theorize that since there of course are a lot of... I think this this is not a controversial point, that there are like conflicting information in this holy book and many others. So you find these certain points that may contradict with uh, something else somewhere else. But if you take this literally, as I suppose you are supposed to do, because it's the direct word of God, then kaboom. Yeah, but that's that's it, the situation with every holy book. Basically, the difference here is the Bible is written from second-hand accounts, whereas Quran is supposed to be the direct word of God. So this could give kind of more validity to the content, whereas we can play kind of games. Well, maybe they didn't quite mean that, but maybe this was written out of context, or you have this maneuverability there. But with Quran, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's kind of the same for every holy book, like Henrik said, because you will have as many lectures as you want of a simple sentence in the Quran. Of the same sentence, you'll have someone who will say, this means this, and someone else who says, no, he means something else with these words. And maybe both of them are correct. Like, both of them gave an interpretation of this sentence, of this surah, or of this story. One of them will say, we have to like apply it exactly as it is. Another will say, no, we have to take it out of context. It's a historical one. It's only meant for uh, people back at the days when they were living with the prophets. And others will say, no, it's not the case. And uh, it's applicable like uh, everywhere and every time. So it's kind of the same because back at the time, crusades in Iberia and Spain were, and they were like Muslim and Jews killed by Christians, they were using Bible to justify their attacks. And uh, I think it's the same thing goes with Quran because you will have people who will uh, justify it with this sentence or with this surah and others will, who will say, no, this is taken out of context. I would argue that because you can use this certain loopholes to the Bible, that's why we've been able to modernize how we reflect on it. But so you are saying that we could reform Islam in the way that we have done with Christianity. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly what I mean. Okay. There's a part with punishing the merchants of temple, something like that, and where it was mm. violent. But still, Christianity evolved to be like a peaceful religion where we only think talk about love and accepting the other and tolerance and that uh, Jesus mm. paid the our mistakes and etc. Same process. Picking the better parts. Exactly. Yeah. And I think this is the job that must be done with Islam, like taking only the nice parts of it, or do you have orders of treating well your neighbor or your family, etc. And even like the uh, violence uh, and uh, the rest of the uh, surahs and saying that all of those are only pliable like uh, back in the days and not today. But isn't 
Islam a peaceful religion? Yeah, it depends. Like I said, I don't know what is a peaceful religion and what is a violent religion. Yeah, you go to Buddhism. Normally, it's a peaceful religion, but then you go and you see what all uh, the Buddhists did to Rohingya, the people in Myanmar, all the killing and all the things that happened there and then the same thing goes to christianism with the crusades and all the things yeah. that happened in history so i think there is no peaceful religion and no violent religion it's all about how you want to see it and how you want to read the text because the text is always there it's the same the bible has been always the same like before and now but still christianity was violence in 15th, 14th century, and it's peaceful now. So I think it's the same with every religion. But yeah, there's still some texts who are really violent. And you have some Muslims who will say, yeah, those texts are meant for us, so we have to apply them. And others will say, no, those texts are taken out of context, so they were only meant for the prophets and all his followers back in the days when they were fighting against infidels or Christian or whatever. It was, and it's not the case anymore because the world changed and uh, it's not the same. We're not in a war with uh, anyone, so why do we have to apply them? But yeah, it's all about your lecture. It's all about your perception. It's all about your point of view. Yeah, because we have that exact same problem with Christianity even today. Mm-hmm. Like, we still have people who take Bible too literally. Exactly. And use it to justify horrible acts and even in mainstream christianity there is still huge sticking points that stem stem from what has originally been written into the bible like for example female priests Mm -hmm. are something that we still do not see eye to eye inside the christian church yes and it's fucking 2018 already but (laughs) <laughs> we still we still have priests who honestly think that women should not be allowed to become priests exactly, yeah. because something that the bible says exactly, yeah. and gay marriage gay marriage mm-hmm. is another point yeah. that the mainstream christianity still has to struggle with because even the priests can't agree on should homosexuals have the right to marry or should they not have Exactly. I would say it's every religion, it's the entire world and not just Islam. Coming from Finland, we Westerners have also a real problem on how Islam is being presented to us. I've even heard someone to make the claim that Islam is like the only religion in the world that is not peaceful. And that has been a real statement made. I heard it like four years ago. Mm-hmm. So there are still people who think that way, who honestly think that there is no peace to be found in Islam. And these can't be educated Western people. So in that sense, we also have a lot of work to do when it comes to our attitudes towards Islam. I think the main work should be done by Muslims themselves than by western people speaking of the movie i remember there was a scene i don't think you paid close attention to it but i did because it, yeah like you said cultural background and everything there is a scene where uh, you see the mother 
of two kids watching the soap opera. It's a Mexican one because back in the days, a lot of Moroccan used to watch like Mexican soap operas. And then you have scenes of couple kissing and nobody changes the, the channel, like everybody watching like if it's a normal thing. And then when the brother Hamid came back from prison and then he started like, what are you watching here? It's uh, bad things. And then the mother like uh, shuts off the TV and uh, then Yashin is like angry. Why do you shut the TV? We've been watching this every day. Why do you shut it now? And she say, no, just listen to your brother and uh, respect him and everything. So it kind of illustrates how Moroccan society went changing. And this happened because uh, my parents left it and I got to leave it too. But the mother of two kids was Muslim all the days. Like when she was watching soap opera and kissing scenes and everything, she was still a Muslim. But she never thought that this is a bad thing or anything because she was like a popular Islam, like a light one, pink one, doesn't care about all. She only prays and do her things, but she doesn't uh, judge anyone who does different things. And then you had all of the uh, Islam that came from uh, Saudi Arabia, exactly. And it's the same Islam who went emerging like everywhere in Europe. Very radical one who says that Islam is the only right religion, that all the infidels must be killed, that you must wear this and you don't have to wear this. You have to act like this. You don't, you can drink alcohol. You can do this. You can do this. And because those had so much money, so they had more power to go and spread this version of Islam because everywhere in Moroccan beaches, like uh, before in the 70s and the 80s, there were like people drinking alcohol in the beach like normal, swimming in bikinis and everything. And then all of a sudden you had all of this Islamic hard version who came from Saudi Arabia. So they were financing TV channels, radio channels, giving people audio CDs and all to listen. And this is how people went from this light Islam, which was kind of similar to Christianity now, to a more radical one. And the same happened in Europe, because when there were Muslim immigrants who went to Europe, it used to be like normal people who were religious, but still they didn't give a fuck about what you should wear, if you could drink alcohol or not. And then you have European governments who received all of these Saudi preachers who opened mosques for them. And this is where all the uh, indoctrination started. And this is where all the brainwashing started in Morocco, but even in Europe. I guess we have all seen the pictures from Palestine when like a change that has taken place in so many Muslim countries in a short amount of time. Now in the 60s, they were wearing very westernized clothing there exactly. as far as I know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It was the case. And even in Egypt, like, uh, if you only watch Egyptian movies in the 60s, 70s, you will see, like, uh, even in Egyptian movies, you will see, like, uh, sex scenes, you will see alcohol everywhere in every movie. And then you go back and you watch a movie from the 90s or just uh, a few years ago, and you will think, like, it's totally different country while it's the same, but all you was infected by a virus called... Uh, Saudi Islam. Yeah, bloody interesting. We need another podcast for this one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it in the Saudi movie. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's been a very interesting conversation and probably could be continued for the rest of the night. Hopefully this has been like a productive discussion for all and kind of gave a new perspective on the movie and perhaps on the Moroccan culture or anything else. For me it was a lot of fun and once again I'd like to thank all our listeners for all the feedback because it helps us to keep going. We do believe we put in a great amount of effort to give you some culinary fiesta for your ears. Or maybe not. Maybe we are completely delusional here, even though we did our best to be as logical as possible. But anyway, please feel free to send any feedback via the flicklab at pm.me or your favorite social media site. And you can follow us, as you know, on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube or Instagram or as Henrik likes to say, on the interwebs. Finally again, a huge bow and thank you, Shukran, for our visitor for making this episode possible. And uh, next week, what is happening next week, Henrik? I don't have the faintest idea. (laughs) 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 I, I, I just work here. (laughs) (laughs) but that's the problem for the next week and you know what i will give you a little break because as we have noticed these country episodes take a lot of our time and effort let's take it a little bit easier next week shall we Uh, i'm fine by that perfect as fun as this was okay okay but by the way who chose this movie to be a moroccan movie of the week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's coming. I really didn't want more Moroccan movie to be about terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> like the worst thing you could choose. I, I, I was thinking the exact same thing when I saw what the movie is gonna be about. Like I, I was like, we are starting the, you know, this where we take different movies from different countries. And what is the first subject matter that we touch on? Islamic terrorism. Like, yeah, they are fucking nailed it. And when it comes to Poland, it's church. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my what the God. fuck is this about? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like the worst parts of every country. <laughs> Soon you will have people marching against our podcast. <laughs> In every yeah. fucking capital. <laughs> yeah, what well, well, was it gets to feel on it? Just, you know, darkness and white nationalism, so. Oh, God. <laughs> yep. Thanks for joining us on us. It was, it was a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Is it over? It's finally over. <laughs> <laughs> I have <haven't done> nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh.